Hi. The reading is uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. If you've got a church red Bible, it's on page 1646. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thanks, Corinne, and good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here. If we haven't met, uh, my name is Jack. Um, I'm a member of the church here, I'm part of the pastoral leadership team as well. Uh, and today we come uh, to uh, our final talk, or indeed the second talk, uh, in our little mini-series, uh, Universal Questions, Ultimate Answers. And we've been doing something a little bit different in this little series. Um, Our regular pattern here at Barney's uh, is to uh, dig into a passage from the Bible and let it set the agenda for what we talk about uh, and how we think about the world around us. Uh, But every so often, uh, it's good kind of go the other direction, uh, to have a look at what the questions our world is asking and then see how the Bible and the biblical story answers those questions. And so that's what we've been doing in these series. We've been observing uh, that there are essentially these big questions uh, that are out there that are common to all humanity. Uh, Questions uh, that our world is asking and questions that the Bible and Jesus in particular uh, gives answers to. Uh, Last week we had a little look at the idea of connection, uh, that we all want to be part of something bigger. Uh, that there's essentially a a tension between the one and the many, between the individual and the communal. Uh, If you want to know why uh, Henry and I are dressed exactly the same today, um, thank you, Um, then we actually digged into the psychology of that last week. Um, So go and and have a listen to that, but it's okay because I wore fun socks. Oh, no. (laughs) Point proof from last week. But fortunately, praise the Lord for all of us, that tension is resolved as Jesus unites us to himself uh, while protecting our diversity as his people. Uh, And today we get uh, to the ultimate uh, of touch points. Uh, And this touch point is kind of the one that almost holds everything together. The question that you basically have to answer, and the way you answer that will dictate the way that your life goes. Uh, Every culture in its own ways, is wrestling with this, and it does go to ultimate reality. 
Uh, this is the fundamental presupposition that we bring into all of life. And the question that we're looking at today is, is there a higher power? And this touch point asks questions like, is there a way beyond the material world? Is there a way beyond our regular normal experience? Does the transcendent or the supernatural uh, exist? And so the first thing we're going to do is have a look at our culture uh, and try to have a little bit of a look about how it is currently asking and wrestling with this question. And that might seem a little strange at first glance uh, because we might say that our culture uh, has answered this question in the negative, uh, that there is no higher power. We're a secular culture. That's the dominant narrative that you'll hear in the media uh, and institutions. Uh, in a sense, as Australians, it's almost as though as a country we're aspiring uh, to the model set out uh, in John Lennon's famous song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. This is the vision of a secular world. And some of the data that you see would seem to back up the idea that this is where Australia is going or where we're trying to head. Uh, the new census data was pretty clear. Religious uh, affiliation is falling and will probably continue to fall. Uh, you can see that fall there in that chart. Uh, people who identify as Christians uh, is kind of the teal colour uh, that is decreasing. Uh, the light blue that's increasing if people who've ticked no religion. Uh, we can see this chart in a slightly different way. Uh, you can see there that people who identify as Christians at 44%, I think it is, and then no religion uh, around the sort of 37% mark. Uh, we can see this in other markers as well. Uh, this is the decline in church attendance. Um, over the past 50 uh, odd years as well. Church attendance, religious attendance rather, is also dropping. And it's a bit hard to know where the floor is with this data. Is it going to just keep dropping? And so, some sociologists have suggested that the world that we live in is what we might call, uh, or might say, is disenchanted. That is, everything now has a scientific explanation. Data and logic drive the way that we live life. Uh, as the French mathematician uh, Jean-Pierre Laplace may or may not have said to Napoleon when questioned about the absence of God in his work, I have no need for that hypothesis. And that's kind of the way that our world thinks about it. We don't need to have God as an explanation. We have science. We are free from religion and superstition. and We are therefore close to living out John Lennon's dream. Except, of course, are we? At first glance, we might think this, but actually when we take a second glance at the data, a more complex image begins to emerge. Have a look here up on the screen. Uh, this is data taken from the NCLS, the National Church Life Survey, uh, and it throws in the idea of spiritual as well. Uh, so if you see on this chart, 26% of people will identify as being spiritual or religious. 
25% are moderately spiritual religious. 12% are spiritual but not religious. While 37% describe themselves as neither spiritual or religious. That's 37% is about what we'd expect from the census data. That sort of lines up. That's what that block is. But if we ask a slightly different question of these groups, the data starts to become more confused. Look at what happens when these groups are asked about whether they have had or indeed believe in a mystical or supernatural experience. Uh, to explain this chart, at the top we've got religious and spiritual at the top, then moderately uh, spiritual but not religious, and then not religious or spiritual at the bottom there, and then moving across the screen, the purple is yes, I've had an experience like this, uh, the green is no, I have not had an experience like this. Um, the sorry, I put that in wrong. The the purple is yes, I've had an experience like this. Uh, the blue is no, but I know someone who has. The green is no, but I believe it could happen. Uh, and the dark blue uh, is no, and I don't think such experiences occur. And the last little block there is unsure. Uh, so if you have a look at that, there's kind of two really th interesting things that happen here. The first is that that cluster of 37% of people, which is the bottom line there, who are neither religious nor spiritual, who probably tick no religion in the census data, of that cluster, over half, to some degree, are open to the idea of a supernatural experience. Only 46% definitely say it couldn't happen. So the people who say they are not religious, not spiritual, over half are in some form open to the idea of a supernatural experience. That tells you that there's a lot more going on here. There's more openness than the data initially suggests. And secondly, there's a stat that's equally confusing in the other direction. Of those who are very spiritual and religious, 16% don't think supernatural experiences occur or are unsure. For the moderately spiritual and religious, that's 23%, and for the spiritual but not religious, it's 21%. So wrap your head around that. We've got a whole stack of atheists open to the supernatural and a whole lot of spiritual people who don't think that the supernatural is in fact operational. So what does this tell us? Is this just junk data? No, I think there's actually telling us a fair bit here. Number one, it tells us that people generally are actually inconsistent when it comes to their beliefs. People generally are inconsistent when we come to their beliefs. Uh, we like to think that we are rational people who are driven by data and logic, but the reality is, uh, for those of us in the 21st century, we have never been better at accessing and downloading information. We do it constantly and easily, but we have never been worse at processing that information. We download the information super fast, but then we never put it together. We never consider, well, if I have this belief over here and it contradicts that belief over there, how does that work? Anytime we kind of run into this cognitive dissonance, we simply move on to the next little bit of information or keep scrolling through Instagram. And so as a result, we live in a world and in a culture where people simply pick and choose which bits of a worldview they like and just kind of mash it together. It doesn't really matter if it's inconsistent as long as it works in the moment. 
Secondly, this data, I think, tells us that what people publicly identify as isn't necessarily the whole story. What people publicly identify as isn't necessarily the whole story. And this is helpful to know as well. People are much more complicated and nuanced than what, label, what a label can tell you. Even, in fact, if that person has self-labeled themselves. You see, it's one thing to be put in a lab surrounded by other science students and declare that you have no religion or spirituality at all. It's another thing to be sitting around a campfire at midnight at Halloween, retelling that moment where you had an experience that you can't just quite explain. A lot of this is situational. But I think thirdly, that ultimately, this sort of confused data points to the fact that there is just general widespread confusion with the idea of a higher power. And not just a confusion about a higher power, a whole series of questions that our world is wrestling with. Which high power? Is it personal or is it impersonal? Is it a force that I can tap into and gain energy from? Is it like karma that ultimately holds me responsible for good and evil? And how do you know about that higher power? How do you access it? And how do you access it particularly when trust in institutions and religions is at an all-time low? What about the fact that every day you can go and read your horoscope in the newspaper? And so when we push through the data a little bit more, we find that actually Australia isn't as disenchanted as we first thought. It's more that we're differently enchanted. Modern Australia may have rejected religion, but in the next breath it can talk about how the universe is looking out for them or that she's doing something to get good karma. We haven't moved from Christianity to a secular atheism. We've moved from Christianity to kind of a weird sort of syncretism that just picks up bits of everything, from big dominant religion ideas through to odd folk spirituality. But actually, I think we see this in our culture, culture most vividly whenever you happen to be with someone or talking about one of life's pressure moments particularly when we're talking about death. When modern Australians are faced with death, you often get a mixture of ways that they attempt to understand or rationalise what is going on in that moment. I know that they'll be in heaven because they've been a good person. They're an angel now. They're looking down at us from above. And herein lies the problem for our culture. Having sort of an inconsistent worldview where you pick and choose what to believe works okay when things are going okay. But it can be devastatingly inadequate when things go wrong. If you've simply been suppressing the contradictions in your thinking, when you're faced with tragedy, you don't really have much to draw on. Beliefs that are incredibly flimsy with no foundation can be devastating when you're trying to deal with significant grief and trauma. When you face death, when you face tragedy, these are just incredibly complex and hard situations. And if you don't have a belief system that can hold up in those moments, it can make what is already incredibly hard almost impossible. And so we live in a world where this is true, where we don't know how really to deal with death. We don't know how to deal with grief and sadness. Because where do you turn? What higher power is out there that can help you understand and process what is going on? What can give you perspective in those moments? 
So life is hard. It's hard for all of us in different ways and at different times. And this is the tension that lies at the heart of the way that our world is asking this question. And so what we're going to do is now turn to the Bible and particularly turn to that incredible passage from John 1 and see what message that Jesus has to offer the world. And as we've been going through this series, we've been looking at the contours of the biblical story. And there's kind of a logic to what we had a look at. We looked at creation, how God intended the world to be. We looked at the fall, what happens when sin enters the world and corrupts the creation order. And then we've looked at Jesus, how he is the fulfillment of creation, how he is the solution to sin, how he has come to redeem the world. And so, as we have a look at John 1, have your Bibles open, have a look at that passage. Let's have a look at how these themes appear in John's prologue. Pick it up with me in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. He's mimicking there, Genesis 1, 1. This is about creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, for us, that's a funny way to say things. What is the word? It's a strange way of putting it. Well, this word is really important. In the Greek, uh, it means logos. And for the Greeks, particularly those in the Stoic tradition, the logos was reason with a capital R. That is, it was the impersonal principle that governed the universe. For the Greeks, it was quite literally the higher power in Greek thought. Uh, but it had another meaning as well. In Jewish thought, the Logos was often associated with wisdom, with a capital W as well. The Logos was wisdom personified, the higher power that existed that led to the righteous life. And so John takes this word with those meanings and says that this word was both God sorry, was both with God, but also was God. This idea of the high power in Greek and Jewish literature, he says, this is God. He was with God in the beginning, and this is crucial. Because the Logos, the higher power, is not an impersonal force. It is a person. But John goes further than that. It was through this person that all things were made. Without this person, nothing was made that has been made. And verse 4, this person was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And so in John's creation account, we find a few crucial things. One, the higher power is personal. This is not an emotionless, impersonal power, simply a force that exists. Two, the power is a source of life. It was the word that both created all things and also in whom life exists. And thirdly, this power is light. That is, it can be seen. It is not hiding or hidden. We are not left grasping around trying to piece it all together. The light cuts through the darkness. It can be seen. So, What's the problem? Why does it feel like we have all these problems around the higher power? How is it that we feel that we can't see it? Well, that's because of the fall, because of sin. 
And I think we get a little description of that in verses 9 and 11. Verse 9, The true light that gives light to everything was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is, in a sense, the essence of sin, the rejection of God. And we can see that through the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, as humanity's representatives, reject God. They eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they try and become like God. The world is God's. He made it. But humanity has rejected him. Similarly, as we go through the Old Testament timeline, Israel, God's chosen people through whom the redemption of the world was supposed to come, similarly chose to represent, chosen to represent humanity, they also reject Jesus. When the word came into the world, the true light, they rejected him. His own people, who he created and gave life to, they scorned him, they beat him, and they crucified him. And Adam and Israel, both as representatives of humanity, reveal the problem that all humanity has. We have rejected God. We have said no to the higher power that gives life to the world that we live in. And so, like a child who has smashed a priceless vase, we are left scrambling, trying to put it back together again, trying to reconstruct something approximating the truth, but always falling desperately and almost comically short. So what hope is there for the world? Well, this is the hope that comes in John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Even though we rejected God and God's dwelling pace, even though we placed ourselves in the darkness, even though we would crucify him when he came, Jesus, the word, still came into this world. The word literally became flesh and dwelt among us. The higher power that underpins the reality of this world, he made himself known. He became flesh. He took on our humanity. And he became humanity's representatives. He is the true Adam. He is the true Israel. And he lived and dwelt among us, feeling our pain, sympathizing with our weakness, experiencing even death itself. And he came full of grace and truth. He came to a people who did not deserve saving, and yet he saved. To a people who had chosen death and destruction, and he died in order to bring them life. But not just life. Life to the full. To all who would believe in him. Look at how verses 12 and 13 describes this. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. It's almost too true, too good to be true, right? That we are not just forgiven, that the ledger is not just evened out, 
we are adopted into the family of God himself. And brothers and sisters, it is too good to be true. Particularly when we look at ourselves and we realize just how far, far we fall short, just how broken and sinful we are, just how much we get it all wrong. But it actually makes perfect sense when we take our eyes for a moment off ourselves and look at the glory of God, because this is how God has always been. This is his character. This is his character shown in creation as he lovingly made and ordered the world. This is his character on the cross as he died for us, when he gave up everything so that we might have everything. And this is the message that our world needs. As our world scrambles to understand what is going on, as it asks questions of ultimate reality, as it faces the realities of life, sickness, sadness, and death, this is the message that we have for the world. Three truths that we bring to the world. There is a higher power. That instinct that people have is correct. Two centuries of so-called enlightenment secular thinking, possibly the greatest sustained assault on the concept of God, and it hasn't snuffed out people's deep intuitions about God. People are out there looking for God. But the vague comfort of knowing that there might be some force out there, that there must be something more to this life, pales in comparison to the knowledge of knowing the one true God who is life and has come to bring life. Number two, truth number two, this higher power can be known in Jesus. We have not been left in the darkness. We're not scrounging around trying to piece it all together, like doing a jigsaw puzzle in the dark. When I worked into Sam and Rosie's room last night at 11 o'clock and stepped on a music book and started playing Ina Klein and Lux music very loudly, the light has come into the darkness. He can be known. The word has become flesh. He has come to us. We don't need to ascend to him. He has literally written himself into our story. He's entered history itself. And he has come as a person, Jesus, for the express reason that we might know him. And finally, this higher power wants to know you. But more than that, he wants you in his family, to adopt you as his child. No matter what you've done, no matter how many mistakes you think you've made, no matter how undesirable you might feel, Jesus delights in you. Jesus cares for you and he has literally moved heaven and earth in order to be with you. And so, brothers and sisters, what a profound and serious but incredibly joyous job we have this week. As we walk into the workforce, as we walk into our homes, as we walk into uni, this is the message that we bring with us. A message of life, a message of light, and a message of victory over death. A message that there is a God, a God who loves, a God who cares for you, and a God who has died for you. And so who are the people in your life who need to hear this? Who are you going to offer life to this week? Let me pray as we finish there. Father, we thank you for Jesus.
We thank you, thank you that these instincts that we have, that there is something else out there, that there is this higher power. We thank you that this instinct is true. And we thank you that in Jesus you have revealed yourself to us in a way that you can be known and loved, that you have revealed yourself as a person. Thank you, Father, that you have loved us in such a way that we cannot understand or comprehend. Father, we pray for our world. We pray for our culture. We pray for Barney's and the suburb that we're in here in Croydon. We pray for Adelaide and for Australia. We pray for that those people who are out there who are hurting, who don't know how to deal with death and sadness, those people who are grasping around trying to find that God who they think may exist. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them but particularly that you would be using us as your community here to be pointing people towards you. Wherever we're at in this week, that you would use us to bring people to yourself. And we pray this, Father, because we know that this is who you are. We know how much you have already given. You gave your son that people might come back into relationship with you. And so, Father, be with us uh, as we go out into this week. And we pray this all in your son's wonderful name. Amen.